Hello, and welcome to the Stats and Stories Valentine's Special. I'm Rosemary Pennington, and I'm hanging solo as John's away. As you know, here on the show, we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. And today, we're dipping into the vault to focus on stats related to love and other things. In this extra long, extra special episode, we revisit our conversation with Tai Toshiro about the science of love and relationships. After that, you'll hear frequent Stats and Stories guest David Spiegelhalter talk about sex by the numbers. John will be back next week and we'll share some exciting news, so make sure you listen in. And as always, if you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. World literature is full of stories of love won and love lost. Walls are climbed, battles fought, and parents circumvented in order to unite with one's heart's desire. Some lovers even venture into hell itself. If the New York Times modern love series is any indication, finding love in the 21st century poses its own obstacles, even if there are no three-headed hellhounds. The science of love and relationships is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's departments of statistics and media, journalism, and film, as well as the American Statistical Association. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, chair of media, journalism, and film. Today's guest is author and relationship expert Tai Toshiro. Toshiro received his Ph.D. in psychology from the University of Minnesota and is the author of The Science of Happily Ever After and, more recently, Awkward, The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome. He's also worked as a professor at the University of Maryland and the University of Colorado. Thanks so much for being here today, Ty. Hey, thanks for having me. Just I'm going to start with a real softball question. How did the science of relationships become your academic love? <laughs> it was on accident, like most things in my life, I guess. Uh, I was at the University of Minnesota to study trauma, actually, in the psychology department. And while I enjoyed that research and thought it was important, uh, studying trauma is pretty heavy, as you could imagine. Mm -hmm. And I took a course my first semester with Ellen Bershide. And Professor Bershide was one of the first people back in the late 1950s to study relationships using the scientific method. And I found her course to be so fascinating, especially for romantic love, this idea that you could take something that was seemingly so unpredictable and chaotic and haphazard and describe common processes and organized theory and, you know, apply data analytic methods that helped you see patterns in how people uh, form attraction, how they partner up, and what the trajectory of love looks like across the course of decades. Oh, I, I got to follow up that question, Ty. <laughs> okay, you know, studying relationships with scientific methods, you know, that, that's something that I could, could hear saying. That that's what a statistician would do to ruin relationships. <laughs> yeah. So, so well, tell <laughs> – I'm sorry. Go ahead. That is a good question. There was, uh, there was pushback, uh, quite a bit of pushback, in fact, in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, Professor Bershide and some of her colleagues were called before congressional committees to defend their NIH grants wow. uh, on the topic. Uh, there were other attacks from uh, religious groups and uh, other groups out there that said romantic love is a mystery hmm. that is better left unstudied. So people had a very 
strong reaction to people applying the scientific method to romantic love. Can you can you give uh, an example of one of the first the first times this was used? The scientific method was used to to study romantic love. Yeah, they did. Uh, boy, they did some really elaborate studies uh, uh, back before institutional review boards. And so they uh, found some pretty uh, interesting things in these studies. Uh, one of them that was, uh, I think, done ethically and, and done well was one at the University of Minnesota uh, Student Union. And before students came into a dance to start the school year, they administered extensive personality tests and uh, IQ batteries and <laughs> a whole host of other things that sound unromantic. And uh, so they had all this data on every single person that was going to attend the dance. And then they waited to see who ended up dancing with whom <laughs> and who, when they left upon exit interview, planned to ask that person out on a date. And that was really one of the early studies, correlational studies, descriptive studies, um, looking into this idea of a sort of mating. So do we tend to choose partners who are similar to us in demographic variables, um, attitudes, or personality. Ty, you mentioned pushback here from government and uh, and religion, but what about pushback from the academic community that you're you're studying something? This is a little squishy. Um, yeah. She must have. <laughs> I mean, in your own research and maybe early research, could you talk a little bit about the academy acceptance of applying mm-hmm. science to? to uh, em- emotional life, really. Yeah, it was uh, certainly looked upon with skepticism by other people in the academic community. Uh, in the late 1950s, of course, behaviorism still had a stronghold, mm-hmm. which was amenable to a lot of basic science techniques in the experimental method. And so I think a lot of the early descriptive work and correlational studies done on relationships were seen as uh, probably a waste of time and, and resources. I think the thing that got me convinced that this was a worthwhile thing to study was when Professor Bershide said that she doesn't study romantic love just to study romantic love. She was interested in romantic love because it was like a magnifying glass to look at basic psychological processes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you think about the strongest emotions you've had in your lifetime, a lot of those occurred within the context of your romantic relationships or the most obsessive thoughts <laughs> that you've had in your lifetime. Yes. Uh, a lot of those occurred within the context of romantic relationships. And I found that to be true, that it's a great magnifying glass to look at more basic psychological processes. This is reminding me of de- dealing with 18 and 19 year old students who are really, really <laughs> smart and just totally messed up by their romantic relationships oh. and all of the challenges that they face. Yeah, even the best of us, you know, can, <laughs> can get tripped up by the seeming irrationality of, of our romantic relationships. But uh, that's what makes it so interesting, right? Is that how many forces, how many psychological forces in our life can just totally take over? Mm-hmm. our minds. And uh, you're sitting there waiting for a text message back <laughs> from somebody for hours on end and fretting. Uh, there's very, very few domains in life where we'd experience the same kind of obsessiveness and activation. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned that, that some of the first studies were these were observational studies where you're measuring mm-hmm. and then looking at, at correlates of, of certain outcomes with certain certain input conditions. Can you can you talk about some of the one of the first experimental studies that was done to investigate this? 
You know, one of the first experimental studies uh, sounds pretty simple in hindsight. It was pretty revolutionary at the time, actually. Psychologists are really interested in studying the individual. I think that's what we're good at. Um, what's, what are you thinking in your own mind? Uh, how does a certain stimulus affect your behavior? But, you know, most of our important interactions and most of the important outcomes in our life occur in interpersonal contexts, whether that's at work with our work colleagues or our bosses. Um, it could be in our romantic life, certainly, or with our friends and, and colleagues. So the idea that you would study psychology and account for two people instead of just one person was mm -hmm. actually really unusual. So they did this uh, clever study where they brought people into the lab and they introduced them to some random other uh, participant they had brought into the lab as well. The manipulation was really simple. They said, in one condition, in the control condition, uh, we'd like you to work on this a collaborative task with this other person. And it was a game theory type of task. Uh, and at the end of that, you'll be done and you know, come back to the lab tomorrow for the next part of the study. In the experimental condition, what they said is, this is the person you'll be working with all week in all aspects of the study. And they had them do the same task. So what they created in that situation was what we call outcome dependency, which is really just the simple idea that this is going to be someone you have to rely on in the future. And it had remarkably power, powerful effects in how fair and generous people were in the, in the game. And of course, when they were outcome dependent, they were much more likely to be fair. <laughs> they were much more likely to even be generous than people who thought this was just a one-shot deal. I know that sounds really common sense in, in hindsight, but at the time, nobody was doing research like this. Nobody was thinking about how our reliance on other people profoundly affects our own psychological decisions. You're listening to Stats and Stories, the topic today, the science of relationships. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Joining me are panelist, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media, Journalism and Film Department Chair Richard Campbell. Our special guest is author and relationship expert Ty Tashiro. Now, Ty, you mentioned a little earlier that um, researching romantic love was seen as maybe not as uh, academically rigorous or wasn't quite given the same kind of um, respect maybe other areas of academia were. And as I was listening to you talk, I was thinking back to the work of like Alfred Kinsey and sort of the kind of controversies they faced when they were asking co-eds about their sex lives um, and the, when they were, you know, traveling around the country interviewing, um, you know, people about what they were doing behind closed doors. And, and, and the fact that, you know, lawmakers have wanted to strip money from the Kinsey Institute in a, a number of times over the years. Has, has romantic relationships, uh, uh, this kind of work that you're doing, face that kind of controversy? Or is it really more people just don't think that it's worth investigating often because it's emotional and we tend to sort of value emotional life less than we do other aspects of life? I, I think the work that Kinsey did was, was important, of course, and continues to be. But uh, it was just <laughs> more alarming, I think, on the yes. surface. Yes, yeah, I would uh, agree. <laughs> yeah, especially given the times. And so I, I think they were certainly under much more constant duress than people who were studying romantic love or romantic relationships. But, uh, you know, as you look back from the late 1950s through really the mid-1970s, there was a lot of opposition um, from a lot of different sectors about people conducting this work. Mm -hmm. So what, what's been the biggest surprise for you in this, in this work as you've looked at the literature, as you've done your own research? 
Oh, it's been I've been surprised at almost every <laughs> at almost every turn. Oh, that's great. <laughs> say. Yeah, it's kind of uh, it's, it's great as a researcher because you're always uh, really interested and re- really invested. And, you know, you're so intrigued because you're, you're not certain what you're going to find. Things that you think are common sense from your real life experience turn out to be turn out to be counterintuitive. I, I think one of the things that's been most interesting to me is just how strongly evolutionary forces mm. still have an impact on the kinds of mates we think are good mates to select. And it happens in such a subconscious way that we don't always realize that's happening. Um, but let's take something like physical attractiveness. So if you ask people what they want in a romantic partner, they'll give you the socially desirable responses. So they'll say they want someone kind or someone with good character, you know, all all these things that are good things to want in a partner. But if you actually watch what they do, so if you watch them in a speed dating study or observe their online behavior, what you find is that men prioritize physical attractiveness as the number one variable that they're going to maximize on. And women, uh, it's the second most maximized variable of physical attractiveness. Hmm. So, it's different than their self-report. And then you wonder, well, why physical attractiveness? And the thinking about that is that physical attractiveness was a visible indicator of underlying genetic health. Mm -hmm. So for most of human history, of course, life expectancies were, you know, under 40 years old and the chances of you dying or your offspring dying were very high. And so you wanted to get somebody with uh, the best genes possible so that you're, offspring have the best chances of passing along your genes to subsequent generations. And so here you see this thing where we don't always think about the root cause of it, but boy, it's sure a powerful factor in shaping how we select partners and what we prize as the most valued traits. As as the woman in this interview, I would like to know what the number one thing that women were choosing. Yeah, so uh, evolutionary psychologists would say it's resources, uh, ah. which takes the form of socioeconomic status. Yeah. Mm, very interesting. Yeah. Ty, you do, you do something that not a lot of academics do. You write for public audiences. So, cool. uh, you know, I've read some of your stuff in Popular Science and Time. Talk about why you started doing that, what that was like. It's very different writing for a public audience than it is for other academics. Talk talk about that change. And by the way, you're a very good writer. So oh well, thank you. I I, I appreciate that. It's uh, has not always been the case. <laughs> I can, talk I about can that, that transition. That. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, I was at the University of Colorado, and uh, I I was just could not get out of my head that there was all this great relationship science. Uh, some of it well replicated and, and robust that I thought that information could be helpful to people if they, if you just gave folks the information, um, that alone could be something that could help them improve their relationships. You know, I don't like to tell people a lot of times what to do with their lives. I I think most of us don't like to be told what to do, (laughs) but I do like the idea of giving people information in a way that's really user-friendly and appealing and practical. And I guess that's what led to the jump was just this pull and this uh, feeling that that was something that I needed to do. I also like to tell stories, I guess, ever since I was a kid. I I just enjoy hearing stories. I like to tell stories. And, of course, romantic stories are uh, full of all kinds of 
different plot tensions along the way and uh, sometimes highs and lows. Mm -hmm. And I thought this would be a fun book to write just to tell some uh, romantic stories that people could relate to, have those stories set up common problems that people encounter uh, in their search for happily ever after, and then give them, give them some really great data um, that not only just cites, you know, what, I, what makes me nervous is when popular press writers just cite one study. And, mm -hmm. you know, as a researcher, there's actually hundreds on that same topic. And so I, I was also interested in this idea of how can you uh, convey a consensus or convey best practices rather than just singular studies through popular press writing. Mm -hmm. well, you so have... I think those were the motivations. Mm -hmm. And it was a hard thing to learn how to <laughs> how to write in a way that was different than the way I wrote for journal yeah. art journal articles because uh, it's a totally different style. What what you say though about story? I mean, that's this is what you know. Good journalists who write complicated stories about data all, often will start with the story in order to get to get into the audience. You know, to to hook them. Mm -hmm. That's that's the way most of us understand and our experience. It's the easiest way. Um, so how do, you, how do you make decisions when you write about how much data you're going to bring in, how you're going to talk about it, where you're going to place it in, when you're writing for a public audience? I think the data is primary. Mm -hmm. So I, I usually have it that, hey, there's an idea I need to convey at, at some point in this book, um, pr probably as a chapter. And then what I'll do is I'll go back to the catalog of ridiculous events in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll say, uh, you know, I, I like that because it's disarming, right? Especially if it's self-deprecating. Yes. Um, because now you got people with their defenses down a little yeah. bit. And it's not that I want to persuade anybody without them thinking about it. In fact, quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do want for people to relax a little bit and maybe have a little bit of a chuckle. Mm -hmm. And then... Yeah, I haven't set up this problem that they're like, yes, I, I have totally faced that problem of not being able to ask somebody out that I've pined for for months, mm -hmm. you know, yes. and then to give them some data about, hey, here's some things you can do uh, that would be helpful um, mm -hmm. and think about your own situation, of course, but, but now think about applying that. So I think about it as if I can tell a, a story that o opens us up, maybe let's say the first quarter of the chapter, I think that's pretty good. And then let's get in some data. I like to revisit the story somewhere in the middle of the chapter, uh, what we would call a second plot point. Yes. And then uh, go back to the data. And then I usually end the chapter with a story being funny or sappy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, one of the two. And I find that ties things up nicely. Oh, that's great. You know, one, one thing you just mentioned was the idea of uh, that there's lots of, you mentioned, well-replicated research out there. And certainly, you know, the, the American Statistical Association has published p-value statements in recent years, and there's been a, a, a real concern about reproducibility in science. So I think that's, that's something that clearly has a, a, a broad appeal. So you're, you know, you're saying that there's, this, this work has been, has been uh, reproduced with different populations and different in, by different researchers, huh? That, that's right. So there's some really great cross-cultural studies, uh, some of them including over 80 countries. Uh, yeah. And you find these effects replicate across uh, place and, and culture and even time now, right? Because it's maturing to a point where relationship science has been around long enough 
that can, we can see, hey, something we found in 1960s isn't replicating in 1980 and now in the 2000s. Um, so there is a chance to, to look at that and look at meta-analyses and other ways to judge whether you know, this is quality data where you can then give it to somebody and say, hey, look, I've, I've put in my due diligence here and I'm pretty confident this is a robust effect. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and our discussion today focuses on the science of love. Our guest is relationship expert and author Tai Tashiro. Uh, Richard asked the question uh, a bit ago about sort of the way data journalists present information, and I wonder if you could give some advice, Tai, to maybe a general assignment reporter who's being asked to write about a study about relationship science. How could someone who maybe isn't well-versed in this area um, approach the story in a way that's thoughtful uh, and that that doesn't sort of um, you know uh, sensationalize the report the the study itself or make it seem like this is a one shot thing or or mm. or doesn't sort of place it in its context. Yeah, I, I guess one of the things that gets me is the use of superlatives mm. <laughs> in re- in reporting, and you'll see this is the one thing you need to do to find lasting love. Yeah. Or, <laughs> <laughs> tell, which that's appealing. Sometimes even I'll click on it. <laughs> uh, but of course, that's not true, right? And of course, even a study that had, let's say, a medium effect size or sometimes even a large effect size, you know, overall, in this complex process, that might have accounted for 5% of the variance at most. <laughs> so it's just, I think staying away from these overgeneralizations and these really dramatic statements would be the easiest thing to do. Uh, you know, I, I think a, a great question that I encourage people to ask is if they do an interview with somebody, just simply to to say, hey, would there be somebody who is also an expert in this area mm-hmm. who would disagree with you? And I found people to be very honest about that. And if they uh, sometimes they'll just give a much more thorough explanation and a much more balanced explanation when you push a little bit with mm. questions like that. Um, other times, I guess if they didn't, you could go follow up with the person that they mentioned. But uh, I've I found that if you just trust people just a little bit in a, of course, in a kind way, they respond well to that. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing you mentioned a little bit earlier was the idea that there's some things that have been changing over time that, that when there's this research has been going on now long enough that that can be investigated. So what, what are particular characteristics of, of relationship that seem to be evolving with times and what seem to be relatively stable? I think that one of the great areas to see this is with the theory that relationship scientists call exchange theory. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a really simple model. It's the same model they use over in the economics department or the business school to predict when people will sell their house or sell a stock or uh, buy a stock or, or buy a house. And it's really just three variables. It's what do you want? What do you aspire to? What do you think you're getting? And what are your attractive alternative options? So, you know, uh, other things you could you could buy. And if you take that same model and you apply it to relationships, it's actually a great predictor of when people will commit to a relationship and whether they'll stay committed to a relationship. Now, I think one of the things that's changed with those three variables is the prevalence of attractive alternative options uh, because of online dating and because of apps. And so people have the perception, 
whether it's real or not, I don't know, I guess, but people have the perception that there's an unlimited number of attractive alternative options, especially in urban areas like, like New York City. And that's really, I think, thrown <laughs> relationships a big curveball. And I think as a collective society, we're still trying to figure out how to, how to handle this. And of course, the age of marriage is now around 28, 29 years old, which is about seven, eight years later than it was for baby boomers. Mm-hmm. And a lot of sociologists say, well, uh, millennials will just marry later. I, I don't see why that would be a strong assumption to make. <laughs> and so I think we're really in this interesting period of time where we'll see how people decide to formalize their relationships uh, or if they decide to. Mm-hmm. We couldn't have this interview complete, finish it up without asking you, what, is your re- what research advice would you give a listener that's, that's thinking about looking for a, a partner. So what's, what, what, what kind of, what does, what, what would, re, what does science say in terms of strategies for, for partner selection that you might share? Sure. Uh, and maybe talk a little bit about online dating, right? Which is how my daughter got married last year. Oh yeah. Yeah. So. I'll, I'll try to combine that into, into one here. So I think you can, I know the term gets overused these days, but I think you can moneyball actually, your dating life. And if you look at the traits that predict long-term satisfaction and stability, um, we have a lot of data, actually, about the traits that actually matter. Now, we know that people tend to choose on physical attractiveness and socioeconomic status as two of their top three traits, right, when they're looking for a partner. Mm -hmm. We also know that physical attractiveness does not predict satisfaction or stability, uh, actually, the return on physical attractiveness is negative for heterosexual women. Uh, wow. And socioeconomic, socioeconomic status only matters after you pass the poverty line. Hmm. So as long as you clear that, uh, then there's a diminishing return. So these aren't great predictors. So then that begs the question, which traits are? And it's things that are totally unexciting. <laughs> to the 20-year-old, you know? But, uh, Getting someone who's nice is, I, I can't stress how important that is. And if someone gets called a nice guy or, you know, a nice woman, it's almost insulting in our culture. <laughs> yeah. But it's, you know, one of the best things you can get. They will be generous. They will be fair. They will be uh, dedicated to being empathic, being empathically accurate mm-hmm. about things. So they'll actually be better at intuiting what you're feeling or thinking. Um, another thing is emotional stability. Uh, the flip side of that is neuroticism. <laughs> now, you're like, well, of course, you know, we should get someone who's emotionally stable. But if you look at these behavioral studies, what you find is that emotional st- stability is ranked like eighth to tenth, usually, in the list of priorities. Really? Uh, yeah. And it is the strongest predictor of relationship satisfaction. It's the strongest? And of relationship stability of any of the personality variables. So if you just took those two variables and you chose on, you prioritize those about physical attractiveness and socioeconomic status, you've all of a sudden created this inflection point in your chances of finding a happily ever after or a satisfying and stable relationship. Um, I just wanted to speak real quick too to the online dating. This happens all the time in online dating when people set filters. Mm-hmm. People oh. think of filters as preferences, but those are hard stop choices oh. <laughs> that they're making. 
So if they say they want a man, for example, who's six foot or taller, they've just removed 80% of their pool because only 20% of men in the United States are six foot or taller. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of times people don't think about the consequences of these small preferences for who that leaves available in their dating pool. So it sounds like you would advocate for a dating site that has no pictures and that has a, a scale of emotional stability on it. Yeah, that would, boy, that would be ideal. <laughs> if you're looking for a happily ever after, that would give you the information you need. And uh, what was it? It was uh, OK Cupid actually ran a study on that. It was a random assignment study where they took down the profile pictures for half of their users <laughs> for, a, for a full day. And what they found was when the pictures were down, people had more conversations back and forth. Wow. They were more likely to actually go on a date with the people they were talking to, and they were more likely to go on a second date uh, with the people that they talked to while the photos were down. So if you remove some of these more superficial variables, the suggestion is, is that you might be able to achieve some really meaningful differences. That's good stuff <laughs> that, that we're learning here. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, <laughs> so they're going to people are going to be listening to this episode now, with, taking notes. <laughs> that's right. We were we were all taking notes frantically while you were talking. <laughs> well, I say too for people who have already chosen yeah. uh, their partners. Um, you know, one of the nice things I think about thinking about how you prioritize the traits that you want in a partner, um, even if it's post hoc, is, uh, is sometimes you realize just how lucky you are because that's something that happens in long-term relationships as we start to take for granted all of these wonderful subtleties mm-hmm. about our romantic partners because we habituate as humans mm-hmm. so it's, it's nice to remember like oh yeah my partner is super nice you know <laughs> and really kind and generous and i i seem to have forgotten that a little bit Thanks, Ty, again for being a guest on Stats and Stories. Next up is David Spiegelhalter talking about sex by the numbers. With February comes what feel like the coldest and darkest days of the year. But right in the middle of the month sits a shining spot of light. At least if you're the romantic type. Americans will spend an average of $146 buying gifts for their sweethearts or people they hope will become their sweethearts this Valentine's Day. At the same time, journalists and bloggers will be furiously writing stories trying to make sense of love, attraction, and sex. Those things are the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we look at the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Our regular panelists are Department of Statistics Chair John Baylor and Department of Media, Journalism, and Film Chair Richard Campbell. Today's special guest is David Spiegelhalter, Winton Professor for the Public Understanding of Risk in the Statistical Laboratory, Center for Mathematical Sciences, University of Cambridge. He's also the author of the book, Sex by Numbers, What Scientists Can Tell Us About Sexual Behavior. Thank you for being here this afternoon, David. No, thank you for asking me. Uh, just to start off the conversation, how did someone who seems to be focused on communicating risk get interested in studying the numbers behind sex? Yeah, a good question. I asked myself 
that myself. <laughs> I ask myself that question sometimes as well. Um, I, it was my publisher, really. Um, I, I did a book on risk with, with my publisher, and then he said, oh, I'd like to do, you to do something else. And uh, they work with the Welcome Collection, which is this exhibition space, well-funded in, in London, that puts on medical exhibitions. And, uh, and they were going to put on an exhibition um, about sex, about history of sex research with, with uh, Kinsey mm-hmm. and uh, surveys and so on and so on. And they wanted a book to accompany it. So essentially, this is a book to be re- to accompany an exhibition. Mm. What's been the reaction to this book? Oh, it's not bad. It got incredibly good reviews. Yeah, I was amazed. And it, it was serialized for a week in a popular newspaper, double page spread every week. Wow. But then it didn't actually sell fantastically well. <laughs> so let's let's say it's one of those critical but not popular successes, um, and uh, which is a bit disappointing. But I, I can I think I can understand why it sort of falls between two stools. That you know it it it's, it was sort of marketed as a popular book, Sex by Numbers, with that title and so on, and it was on the sort of you know, you know from a popular publisher. And yet actually, you know, it's a book about statistics. It's quite it's got graphs in it. You know, I tried to keep the numbers down, but actually it ends up not being a really sort of you know fluid read and um, i think it's quite good but i, I, I in, in retrospect it probably been better to be in marketed as a slightly more technical book for students in social science because that's actually what it is it's quite actually quite a serious book about the difficulties of doing research serious research in this in this complex area david this is richard campbell and my job is to ask about the journalism side of this mm. what did journalists get right and wrong when they're writing about you and covering the work that you've done not just in this book, but in general, possibly. Yeah, I, I got a very good relationship with journalists on the whole. Um, I worked closely with them. Uh, when this book was serialized in a very, you know, big, uh, in the Daily Mail, you know, very big circulation mm. newspaper, mm. you know, I worked well with them. The actual journalists I've always worked well with, it's the editors putting in the headlines that are always the problem. <laughs> and uh, and so the inappropriate headline, you know, just for example, in the Daily Mail, we were talking about, you know, a frequency of sex and, and uh, sexual ha- behaviors among older women, whatever. And, um, and then the headline writer put something about promiscuity. Now, I, I, I can't believe, I, mean, I wouldn't dream of using a word like that. It's so value-laden. And, and actually, I thought it was a word that hadn't been used since about 1973. So, it, but, the, but it appeared in the newspaper. I was furious. Oh, I was so angry. On the whole, it was it was well covered. I got some, as I said, very good reviews, very good interviews. However, uh, you may have heard of a, a particular disaster that happened um, when I was talking about this at a Hay Literary Festival, which is you know, the major literary festival in this country. And I was giving a popular talk you know, and I, I do when I talk about this stuff, I fill it full of jokes. And um, mm-hmm. one of the aspects I was talking about was uh, the the finding that the frequency of sex has declined um, among same-sex couples between 16 and 44. Um, they were reporting in 1990 having sex five times a month, and in 2000 about four times a month, and then a median of three times a month in 2010. And um, so I made some fatuous joke by saying, "Oh well, at this rate, nobody will be having any sex at all by 2000." <laughs> 40 and and then and then i said well why not and i said and then quite seriously i said actually the people who did this research are suggesting that decline of sex could very much be be because of increased um, use of electronic media. People have got their phones all the time. People are, you know, so engaged with communication with everybody <laughs> that uh, that time for intimacy is, is being shrunk. Um, and I then I made the joke that oh well, I think it's to do with box sets and people saying oh. 
no, dear, I'm not coming to bed now. I'm watching the latest, you know, series of Game of Thrones. <laughs> so, um, so I thought, you know, and he got a laugh. But a journalist in the audience for a major newspaper didn't quite get the joke. And the next day, there was a story saying, Cambridge professor says that there will be no sex by 2030 because of Game of Thrones. <laughs> and um, I was a bit cross <laughs> and complained. And they changed the article online. But then it was too late because the way journalism works now is that somebody yes. writes an article and every other outlet then picks it up. So this story went around the world. I, I, I've just got, um, you know, so many headlines in all countries and different languages, all to do with this Cambridge professor who says there's going to be no more sex in the future because of Game of Thrones. And you put together sex, Cambridge professor and Game of Thrones, and it gives them a chance to put some salacious photograph up as well. So um, <laughs> it was, um, I, I thought, oh, there's, you know, 40 years of reputation, you know, gone down the drain in one go. Um, in fact, Nobody took any notice, and uh, I've used it to get a huge amount of laughs whenever I give a talk about this. <laughs> that's, a, that's a wonderful story. What makes doing research about sex so difficult? Oh, I think I think it's a, it's a tremendously uh, difficult idea to do, you know, uh, rigorous statistical research on. Um, I mean, doing any, you know, you want to find out about something that essentially is private. Um, you can't just go out and see it. You can't put cameras in bedrooms. Or if you did, it'd probably change behavior rather a lot. And so, and yet you want to know what people are up to. So the only way really is to ask them. And um, although there are some indirect signs you might be able to use as well. And you ask someone, so, you know, you can't just walk up to somebody and ask them how many times you know, do you have sex in a month or whatever, except some people do. I mean, there are some places people do do street interviews of this stuff, which I don't think would be that reliable. But actually, if you want to do it seriously, it's it's expensive because the people who do the big surveys don't even want to do online surveys. They don't want to use the standard panels. They don't want to use telephone surveys. So you have to send someone to randomly chosen houses and they have to interview, arrange for an interview with somebody, spend time explaining to them why they're doing this, why this is valuable. Small reward, about you know, £30, about you know, $50, $60. Then do an interview, which the person speaking uh, has to be guaranteed that it's going to be anonymous and uh, they're sort of, you know, Real serious secrets aren't going to go any further. So this is all done both in the US and in the UK. These surveys will be done with, with computer-assisted interviewing where the person giving the responses uh, is doing it onto a laptop and the interviewer cannot see either the questions or the answers that are being put in. And then the laptop's closed down and so nobody should be able to identify the answers with the individual. So these are difficult, these are very difficult surveys to do. You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. The topic today, sex and numbers. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Joining me are panelists, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media, Journalism and Film Department Chair Richard Campbell. Our special guest is David Spiegelhalter, author of Sex by Numbers and Stats Professor at the University of Cambridge. I had a question to follow up on uh, reliability. One of the things I read was that women admit to having more frequent sex if wired up to a lie detector and, and was one of your studies. So since people lie about <laughs> reporting sex all the time, how do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, it is a problem, of course. Um, there, there are various checks you can do. First is an internal check um, by asking the same question in two different ways at different ends of the interview. You can get some check um, over time by see, seeing whether essentially whole cohorts of people 
answering reliably. Um, and it's an interesting design. What you do, essentially in 2000, uh, they were asking 25-year-old women, when did you first have sex? And then in 2010, you ask 35-year-old women, when did you first have sex? Mm. And they should give similar answers. Uh -huh. And so you can do a sort of consistent... They're not the same women... But the same group of people. So if you're doing a good survey and people are giving good answers, you should give equal, reasonable answers. So that's an, in a way a global check. You can get do a global check by you know you asking people whether they've had abortions or not, and then checking that with abortion rates. So there are certain external checks you can do. Um, actually, just you know checking whether someone is telling the truth or not is extremely difficult mm -hmm. um, at the time. You try to engender trust um, and so on, and the, the interviewers. I've, I've talked to the interviewers on these surveys, really believe they are getting reliable answers. However, we know there's some areas where there clearly is a lack of reliability. And the classic one is asking people how many sexual partners they've, they've got, they've had in their lifetime. And um, the, the point is that mathematically, if you've got a, a po closed population of men and women, then the average in terms of the mean number of sexual partners that uh, men have got, had, and women have had, should be the same. Uh, it must be, <laughs> logically, because it's the same. There's a single number of partnerships, and so the average number of partners should be the same. And it isn't. Um, in previous surveys, earlier surveys, uh, women will often report, or men will often report, uh, will on average report twice as many, having had twice as many partners <laughs> as women have. That gap is, is lower now, and it's certainly lower for, for um, if you ask about recent, about recent sexual partners, the gap gets a lot lower. And the fact that the gap gets low when you ask about recent sexual partners suggests this may be something as much to do with uh, memory recall and reporting as it is to what you might call social desirability bias, as it's known about uh -huh. generally women not wanting to admit that they've had as many sexual partners as men. And, and there's all sorts of other reasons people have suggested is it that um, non, or we're not including uh, female prostitutes in the survey, and yet that, that may you know, comprise a lot of the partnerships of men. So all sorts of reasons have been included for this. I think it's a, a big mix of reasons. There's some evidence, and this is a lovely study done on in American University, a randomized trial in which students were asked, were randomized into three groups and then asked, how many sexual partners have you had? And one group was uh, guaranteed anonymity. Uh, another group was uh, had the sort of threat of, of, of revelation because uh, one of their peers just came and picked up the paper and took it away and could see it. And another group was wired up to a lie detector. Now, the lie detector was fake. You know, it was just some machine with wires on it. It didn't. It didn't have anything. It didn't. It wasn't a lie detector. But they were told it was a lie detector. And the evidence in this randomised study was that women who were wired up to the lie detector did admit to having slightly more sexual partners. And there was a significant difference. It wasn't there was an interaction for men? There wasn't an effect of the lie detector. So it suggests there's some element of perhaps social desirability bias, perhaps just, but also perhaps just effort made. There's a, there's a sort of suggestion, and again, this is, I don't think there's strong evidence for this, is that if you ask women to recall their sexual partners, they will start um, counting and remembering names and people. There may be some they don't want to remember and they might just rule it out and not use. People who've had many sexual partners, if you ask men, they might 
be more liable to make a rough estimate. And this is shown in the in the raw data when you look at the fascinating graphs of the raw data because you see severe rounding. Once you get above 10 or 15, but 10 people are obviously clearly remember, you know, they might be remembering names and faces. I should say for people, men and women between 35 and 44, the most common response is that they've had one sexual partner. That's the most common. About six of, of, of people say that. Um, but then after about 10 or so, you know, people obviously start getting a bit vague, you know, faces start blurring into into each other and they start saying 15, 20, 30, <laughs> 50, 500, you know, whatever. <laughs> There's one really notable man who said 47. So I, I, think, he must, I, I think he's a statistician. I mean, really. Very good. Thank you. One thing you bring up in your book uh, is you talk a bit about Alfred Kinsey's uh, yeah. research. And I, I did my PhD at IU. I worked pretty closely with the Kinsey Institute at Times wow. on some yeah. stuff. And so I was sort of interested in getting your take on kind of the way – his work stood up because it's been controversial over time yep. and just sort of what do we know? What does Kinsey tell us about sex that that is still something that that scientists are sort of using and working with? Today. Okay. Kinsey was extraordinary. It's just fascinating because I, you know, then I started reading the biographies and everything like that. He was extraordinary. I mean, in, in, in compared with how surveys are done now, he, he, well, he invented them really, but he broke every rule. I mean, that things have changed completely. He would make friends with people, offer them a cigarette, use ordinary language rather than more medical terms. Um, he would go out of his way to find extreme cases. He'd visit gay bars to interview all of those. He'd go, a lot of people were from prison that he interviewed in order to get sort of extremes of behavior. He was a biologist. He, he, he was really interested in 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 in, in um, the range of behavior. And so he, he enlisted some extraordinary statistics, which, I mean, are, are quite surprising now, you know, let alone, um, you know, what they must have been like in, in the late 1940s. Yeah. It, it was quite shocking at the time. Um, and uh, it, the other thing he did, of course, is interviews work. So he just filled, he did no coding scheme, no, um, uh, he just filled up a, a sheet of paper filled up with sort of hieroglyphics of the secret scheme that wasn't written down about how the questions, what the responses, what the little squeals meant in terms of responses to the questions. So um, he was extraordinary. And uh, but and a lot of his, his stats are treated rather skeptically because of his sampling methods. He yeah. didn't completely against random sampling or anything like that. What has incredibly stood up to the test of time is the uh, Kinsey scale of, of sexuality, essentially. The fact that he one of the first people to uh, stop considering people as being, you know, uh, either heterosexual or homosexual, gay or straight, uh, what we might call them now. Um, and he had, a, a, you know, invented a whole range from naught to six in terms of the degree of, of same-sex attraction and behaviour um, with, with, you know, complete heterosexuality at one end, complete homosexuality at the other, and a whole range in between. And that, you know, which he, it was an enormous um, insight that he had. I was curious, what, what was the most surprising thing you learned in the course of doing the research for this book? I can't resist it talking about the sex ratio. And this is just how many boys are born for every every girl. And in Western countries now, it's about 21 boys for every 20 girls. And uh, so a sex ratio of 105, that's said, 105 boys for 100 girls. Um, it's higher in countries which practice some selective abortion, and uh, but about 105 is the current rate. Now, you may think, you know, first of all, you know, what's that got to do with sexual behavior? And why is that interesting? In the book, I show a plot which 
I haven't ever seen done before, just taking UK data, which records the sex ratio or the number of boys and girls born back to 1837. And I've never seen that plotted before. And when you plot it, you get some incredibly distinct patterns. Um, what you do is you get a declining sex ratio from about 1870 to about to about 1910. It's a really, it comes steadily downwards. No, it actually reaches, a, it reaches an absolute bottom at about 1900. And then it starts going up again. And then you get these massive spikes. And the massive spikes are in 1919 and 1944, yeah, and a bit of one in 1973. Huh. So what's that? That's the fact that more boys are born at the end of wars. And I hadn't heard this. I mean, when you start researching it, you realize this has been discussed for quite a long time. And I didn't know anything about that. I thought it was riveting. And there's all sorts of explanations why this might, why this might happen. You know, suggestion that there's some evolutionary reason that tendency among some animals that the the gender of the offspring is slightly affected by the status that that gender might have in in the society, so that somehow there seems to be some this is the Trivers Willard hypothesis. It's known as that some ability to influence the gender by the um, by essentially the needs of society. I, I I don't believe that's operating in this case, and there is an interesting reason that someone suggested, which I I kind of like. And I so I liked I'm a supporter of it. And this is the, there's some evidence that actual sexual frequency influences to a very small extent the gender. So you know people have more sex, younger people having more sex will tend slightly to have more boys. And why is this might why might this be the case? Um, there's some evidence again that if you leave earlier in the cycle, there's some tendency to for a little excess of being a boy. Before the time of peak fertility, um, just before ovulation. So, if you um, conceive earlier in the cycle, some uh, some tendency to be a boy. Now, why do those things fit together? Well, if you have lots of sex, it's more likely you will conceive earlier because there's more of a chance that you've actually already conceived by the time of peak fertility. When do people have lots of sex? Why should that be associated with the end of wars? Coming home on leave, coming home after being demobbed. People having lots of sex. So the um, enormous amount of children born at the end of wars. 1919 in the UK, more children were born than any other year before or since. Oh, wow. um, and uh, so, the, so the suggestion that some people are strongly made, and I really believe, is that um, uh, you have more sex at the end, of, uh, more boys at the end of wars, just because people are having more sex. Frantic sex. So, um, well, maybe not that frantic, but then you're frequent. Um, and uh, there's some uh, the, the support I, I see for this also is that the, the decline in sex ratio in the UK between 1870 and 1900. Um, now, why might that be declining? Well, there's simultaneous historical evidence that people were having less sex at the end of the Victorian period. There's a big decline in fertility in the UK at the second half of the 19th century. It's when we had our fertility transition from kind of natural fertility, five, six children down to two, happened between about 1870 and about 1910. Um, extraordinary you know, change in society. And it's because women were controlling their infertility. But they were not on the whole, using artificial contraception. And historians have suggested this essentially was abstinence or the continence theory. There's big emphasis on continence, essentially on not having sex. So there's some indirect support there for the fact that, of going together, that um, uh, the decline in the sex ratio, I think, is associated with just people having less sex. But don't you shouldn't use this as a way to try to you know fix to have a boy or a girl. Um, you need about you need about you know three hundred thousand births to spot these differences. <laughs> these are tiny differences. 
You're listening to Stats and Stories, and our discussion considers how scientists study sex. David, what is the most frustrating thing that you have seen in the news when it relates to uh, the reporting of statistics, either related to this work or maybe other work you've done? Oh, God, I get so angry so often. I can't remember. When did I last get angry? I start <laughs> shouting at the radio and the things like that. I think the fact that on the whole, statistics are used as arguments. Uh, mm-hmm. They're not used. No matter what people claim, they're used to persuade rather than to inform. Um, I just challenge anyone. Every time you hear a number in the news or in the newspaper, people will be tending to use it in order to make something look big and dangerous. And uh, this really annoys me. You know, the numbers just being used as rhetorical arguments rather than to inform inform people. And, um, and of course, it happens all the time. I mean, it happens in, in our case in, in, in the Brexit discussions for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, last year before the referendum, you know, a huge misuse of statistics there. And, and frankly, an inability of, for example, um, interviewers on the radio to challenge those adequately at the time. I don't think they're just not well enough trained to, to do that. And once a number has got out, once a number is in circulation, it's very difficult to do anything about it. It just takes on a life of its own. So, so how do we combat that misuse? Uh, it's very difficult. I think um, you have to, in a way, be ready for it. I think, you know, you have to challenge more at the time. Uh, being a suggestion, which I think is quite nice on uh, major radio programs in the UK, that if someone does, if someone's using numbers in an argument, that the fact-checking team of the BBC or something goes at it hammer and tongs, and they should, within 20 minutes or so, be able to come back. Even if the, the interview's finished onto something else, within the same program, you should be able to criticise that number that argument, even if you can't do it, if it's a live program, if, obviously if it's recorded, you can. it's easier, but if it's live, that you should be able to fact check and get back there immediately. It's no good doing it a day later. It's too late, too late. You know, you had an earlier book called The Norm Chronicles, mm-hmm. and, in your, and in your subtitle, it was Stories and Numbers About Danger and Death. Mm. So you you think a lot about the relationship between stories, you've told us a few here today, and numbers. Can you talk about how you think of those as Uh, compatible? uh, I mean, this is the thing where obviously I know I should be talking to you as as a journalist because I think that (laughs) – I think telling stories with numbers is just the most interesting topic now. It's it's the topic of the future, and it's I mean, data is more than just data journalism. I think it's it's, it's when it, it's data driving the story, but it's choosing a narrative and a framing that makes a story you know uh, engaging, will carry people through, make them interested in I would say the facts, but at least you know some some quantification. Um, uh, by using good storytelling, using imagery, using um, individual stories, you know, anecdotes perhaps, but that don't ser- that, but the anecdotes serve to reinforce what the numbers are telling you, rather than being a, a, an opposite. Too often, you know, storytelling is based on extreme cases that don't represent actually the body of evidence. Um, and so, I, I, I just wish I was better at it. You know, this is something <laughs> I'm interested, in, but both in terms of visualizations, um, you know, sort of dynamic infographics that can tell a story almost like a storyboard style but also of course in verbal narrative to um to be able to you know include numbers you know even graphs into a story that without putting people off mm-hmm. because it is i even i when i'm just reading if i start finding numbers and things in there you know, it breaks it up it means you have to stop you know in kahneman's language you have to start thinking slowly instead of thinking fast and we we want to make people think slowly but 
we want to keep them engaged enough so they don't just give up. Um, and I think this is, the, you know, the, the real challenge of, of the future in a society where where factual, we all know that, um, you know, factual narratives are, you know, are under challenge. You do a brilliant job of, of, of the story and the narrative, David. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think you're, 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 there's, there's lots of evidence for the effectiveness of, of what you've done. So kudos on that. Uh, I'm curious, you know, one, one aspect of the storytelling and the narrative, one, one device that we often we often see is the two sides of the story, even though those yeah. sides don't have equal weight. So Richard and I have talked a lot about this, and and this yeah. is you know trying to to, to com, combat that. And, yeah. and another yeah. part of it that I've I've liked in your book, you know, talking about the mean and the median, as, mm. as, and differentiating that. And I and and I'll I'll even add more complexity to the question, so you'll have it'll be make it impossible to track what I'm asking. Uh, you know, just the idea of how, of conveying the uncertainty and distribution of responses to yeah. to an audience that seems most enamored with with having some point value that they yeah, really yeah, yeah, invest yeah. in. I mean, that, that's why I think um, number of sexual partners is such a good. You know, I love showing that to. I can I could give a whole lecture really on one graph because it's got so many interesting features. You know, if you look at the number of sexual partners, you know, the most common value is one. You know, the mode. Yeah. But, you know, so you could say, is that representative? Um, if you look at the average, it's really quite high because it's so influenced by, I mean, as you know, the graph, I can't even put it on a slide because it goes out to thousands that some people are saying. And that's going to be enormously influential and drag the average up, just like um, Bill Gates wandering into a room rather changes the average income. But he doesn't <laughs> change the median income at all. And similarly, the median um, is really the most useful I think, um, uh, communication of what's going on. And um, the thing is, I, I'm terribly pedantic, as all statisticians are, about the use of language. So, you know, I would talk about, um, you know, the, the average number of sexual partners of, of, of some of people in, the, uh, in society. But then that's different from the number of sexual partners of the average person. By the first, I mean the mean. And by the second, I mean the median, the average person being the one who's halfway along. And you know, how many sexual partners have they got? So, you know, anybody hearing those things might not even distinguish the two. Um, you know, the, the, the average income and the income of the average person are, are completely different. And I, because I'm you know, very careful in my language, I can distinguish those. And I notice when someone else distinguishes those. But it's very easy for someone who isn't realizing what's going on to just think they're the same thing, which they decidedly aren't. That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. David, thank you so much for such an interesting conversation today. No, thanks very much for having me. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. Stay tuned and keep following us on Twitter or iTunes. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.